Hello and welcome. Oh, do we have to? I'm Bartleby Nehi, and yes, Artemis, we have to have to. Don't try to get out of this. You can't blame me for trying. No, I can't. It shows tenacity. We need that where we're going. We're the Kinetic Paranormal Society. A pair of socks and a magic wardrobe. Traveling through time and space. Investigating the supernatural. You're listening to Metacosmos. Yeah! Here we go! Are you excited, Artemis? Are you excited? No, do I sound excited? <laughs> kind of? Really, which part of me sounds excited? I want to tap that down. Oh, it's in your body language. You're kidding me. Yeah! So, Artemis, can you believe it? We're back. We're going to be doing... Just close your eyes for a moment and imagine that you are in a world. A dungeon-like world. I don't need imagination to feel like I'm in a dungeon. This is definitely torture, Bartleby. Yeah. So, you're in this imaginary dungeon. This is my choose-your-own-adventure podcast for you. Last week, you had a great job. Just to recap, everybody, we went down the economics corridor and explored the trickle-down floodgate. It was awesome. And now, we're back here in the corridor. And Artemis, Artemis, do you want to roll your dice for a skill check? Was I supposed to keep that die? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I failed to bring it back. Oh, don't worry. I have another. Here you go. 20-sided die. Oh, you do have another, don't you? Yeah, okay. Roll your die? Is it a die? I always feel like if it's up to 20 sides, it should be still called a dice. That's a lot of sides. I don't know if that's how it works. Roll your dice. Fine, all right. I got a 18. Really? 18. Yes, 18. Huh. Wow. Okay, well, I guess the torchlight in the chamber just got a lot brighter. Oh, really? Does that mean I can see more detail? Yeah, that means you can see more detail. Well then, uh, we have four doors. What were they again? Okay, well, I should specify, these were all doors that were potential sequels to two episodes ago. So now we're kind of going through a wiggly form where we come back around into the art history chamber. And you could say, like, right now, this, this is the art history chamber because that's the more art history chamber. And these other ones are offshoots of the art history chamber. You're really complicating this. You're not very good at being a dungeon master, except for the torture part. You're very good at that. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, so here we go. Door number one still says more art history. But now you can see a little sign on the door, Artemis. There's a little bit of a note on the door that you can read. And it says the kitsch snooty snooty spectrum. Huh. I don't think I want that door. But I thought you like art history. I don't want that particular door. Oh, okay. Um... Do you want to look at any of the other doors? Ah, uh, yes. Let's go see door number two. Okay, so you look at door number two, and above it, it says science fiction. Ooh, yes. This door is intriguing to me. And across the door, there's a little note. It's, like, written on some tape. Yes. Like, a little bit of, like, painter's tape, and it had some, like, writing on it. Uh-huh. And it got smeared. 
Oh. Yeah, and the smeared writing says, it says, um, hold on, let me read this. It's really blurry. It says, the spookaloo-boo diet Yeah. That doesn't say anything. Uh-huh. So, yeah, th- that's that door. Why is the tape smeared? I don't know. I just it somehow got smeared. You imagined this room and are describing it to me. I rolled an 18. I think I deserve some clarity. Uh, well, I'm sorry to inform you, Artemis. The skill check that you rolled an 18 for was for torchlight. So you got your 18 torchlight and were able to read the smeary painter's tape label on the door. So congratulations! Fine. What's door number three again? Oh, propaganda. All right. And what's it say? Oh, it has more painter's tape. It's smeared again. Oh, of course it is. And it says Abzabubu. I think. I can't read it. It's kind of smeared. You're the one that pretended to write these labels. No, I'm pretending somebody else wrote the labels and they did a bad job of it. Okay? Not telling you what they were supposed to write. That's not how a good dungeon master works. I guess if your goal is to torture me further, then no, that isn't, is it? Yeah! So, here we go. Here we go. Which door of these three doors do you want? What about door number four? Oh, yeah, well, door number four was the economics door. Yes, well, can we go back through the economics corridor? Do you have a new economics episode planned? Um, yeah, uh, of course I do. But there's, like, caution tape across that door. It's got, like, caution tape, and it says, under construction. So you can't go that way because, um, your alignment is lawful good? So, you wouldn't break that rule. True. That doesn't seem like something I would do. So, yeah, which of the three doors do you want? Do you want the first door of more art history, where we go and talk about all of the dichotomy between the snooty snooty and the kitsch? Or do you want door number two, science fiction, and the spookaloobagoo? That's not what you said last time. It's close enough. Or do you want propaganda and abzbaboobadoo? Uh, I will take the science fiction and the spookaboo. Is that what it was? Close enough. All right. Artemis, this is so exciting. Okay, so you've chosen the door. What do you want to do? I'll walk through the door. Very good. Okay, do you have your dice with you? Did you bring it through the door? It was an imaginary door. Of course I have the dice with me. Very good. Okay, Artemis, another skill check. Roll the dice. I still think we should be calling it a die. Just just roll it. All right, then. Oh, I got another 18. Huh, another one? Yes. Okay, well, um, welcome. To the Pyramid Rope Bridge of Doom. What? Yeah, Pyramid Rope Bridge of Doom. So what am I looking at? Okay, so imagine in front of you, it's like a rope bridge, but instead of going across a ravine, it kind of goes in tiers upward. And, you know, I think it's an inverted pyramid. Oh dear, what? Yeah, so, like, the bottom tiers are the small ones, 
And as it goes upward, it expands and has like tiers of ropes hanging from them. Can you picture that? An inverted pyramid, like a rope bridge. Does it bridge a gap? Well, between the sky and the earth. Yes, yes, it bridges a gap between the sky and the earth. This is a very high-concept role-play you've got here, Bartleby. Yeah, so, welcome, welcome. And what this here is, what you're looking at, is a metaphor for science fiction writing. Oh, oh, it is, isn't it? It's fascinating. Yeah, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Actually, Artemis, here's what you're going to do. You rolled an 18. So we are going to give everyone a complete history of science fiction. And we're going to talk about the dialectic that goes from author to author that builds the larger inverted rope bridge pyramid that we're looking at right now. Oh, my. I guess we should start at the beginning of science fiction. Yeah, uh, so that's a, a really, really, really long time ago, right? Like forever ago. The beginning of time, kind of, right? N- no, not really. But, like, people have been coming up with some pretty far-out stories for, like, ever. Have you read Gilgamesh? That's definitely a science fiction. Definitely. Well, I guess in a way, but no, it can't really be seen as science fiction because science fiction has a very specific starting point in history and has expanded from there. Really? Yes. Frankenstein. Yeah, um, I don't know. Really? Yes, of course. And in fact, this reminds me, weren't we supposed to be doing a book club on Frankenstein? How did I forget that? Has this all been to divert me away from the Frankenstein book club? Um, no, no, no. That's them. Something that's going to happen when I finally get my library book. Yay, that hasn't happened yet. Still waiting. I'm on the wait list. Oh, fine. Well, anyways, science fiction starts with Frankenstein. I don't know about that. Does it really? Come on. There were like crazy science fiction stories way before Frankenstein. Not really, no. Yes, there were. What about like Gulliver's Travels? He's like going to islands and he's finding little tiny people. Well, that's more of an adventure story. Somewhat of a fantasy. Isn't fantasy like the twin sibling of science fiction? Go to any science fiction nerd's house, and they're going to have two kinds of books. Science fiction books and then fantasy books. They're like the peanut butter to the jelly of each other. That's totally how it works. No, no, no. If we counted Gulliver's Travels, that would mean that we would have to then count all of the... Imaginary tales going back as far as the dawn of time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. That's what is the history of science fiction. That would be a history of maybe fantasy and mythology. But why does science fiction not become a part of the same pyramid? Why isn't that part of the inverted pyramid? Well, it just doesn't work that way, Bartleby. It all starts with Frankenstein and for very good reason. Okay, why is that? Because what you're thinking is... That everything is a dialectic conversation going from author to author in a fiction-to-fiction basis. Science fiction is a dialectic between humanity and its practice of science and a lineage of fiction stemming from that. Uh, what? Let me explain. You see, 
Sir Francis Bacon and René Descartes. They were two minds that had brought about an era of rationality, empirical thinking, and it was not quite the scientific process, but it was a inspiration point for the Age of Enlightenment. It's a very pompous title for an age, don't you think? Well, yes, indeed. And that is a very important point there, Bartleby. Oh, thank you. Well, you see, that is a big part of what Mary Shelley was commenting on when she wrote Frankenstein. Oh, was it? Yes, because Mary Shelley was witnessing the romantification of science and empirical thinking, and she, through Frankenstein, was making a commentary on the nature of science and its potentials, and not all of that potential was good, and a good deal of it was due to the hubris of humanity. So she was commenting very much on the way that the Age of Enlightenment takes itself very seriously. Ooh, really? Suddenly I'm looking kind of forward to our book club. Yes, I don't want to say too much. Frankenstein is an amazing piece and really has set themes that continue to this day throughout science fiction and has stayed relevant the entire time. Ooh. Wow. Man, okay, so that's the beginning of science fiction then? Yes, yes, yes. What came next in the history of science fiction? Well, it was a young and dawning medium, so there wasn't a lot of direction yet, but really it needed more science and certainly engineering to have material to make science fiction about. So there wasn't... Quite many large strides until science gave some meat on the bone for science fiction to chew at. Uh, give us some examples. Well, the next plank on our inverted pyramid rope bridge would be Jules Verne. Ooh, tell us about Jules Verne. Well, he wrote books like Around the World in 80 Days, 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Journey to the Center of the World. Okay, yeah, these are like, not that different than Gulliver's Travels, aren't they? You actually make a very good point there, because these were somewhat of travel logs, akin to Gulliver's Travels, and so, in a sense there, yes, they were pretty much taking the technology that was adventing at the time, such as hot air balloons and submarines, and imagining the most fantastic journeys that these could go on. So it was taking science and then stretching it from there. Okay, but they're, like, not that different than Gulliver's Travels, right? You said that, right? Yes, yes. So Gulliver's Travels is kind of a sci-fi, right? No, it's an adventure log fantasy. But these aren't adventure log fantasies. 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where they meet a giant squid the size of a submarine. No one's proven that doesn't exist. Okay. Um, what's your point? I'm just saying that it's still science fiction. You know, Artemis, maybe you should just go on. All right, fine. The next plank on our inverted rope bridge pyramid. This is a very precarious metaphor, Bartleby. Keep climbing the rope bridge. We got a lot of tears to go. All right, then, fine. Well, you could say that the next significant name on our 
inverted pyramid rope bridge would be H.G. Wells. In H.G. Wells, he wrote books like The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Monroe, The Lost World, and War of the Worlds. And H.G. Wells, he brought some of the essence that Mary Shelley had brought to sci-fi, where she was warning us of the dangers that would come with technology and looking at humanity from a broader scope in evaluating who we are. And H.G. Wells brought that forward in his stories. For instance, when we look at War of the Worlds, what H.G. Wells is commenting on was the British Empire. He's showing us that this entire attitude of colonialization, if it were then applied to our entire planet, would sure make us feel bad. And he gave readers a sense of what colonialized people were feeling when they were colonialized. Ooh, Artemis. Yes? Jules Verne was writing about colonialization too, but the way that he looked at it, it was like kind of pro-colonialization. It was like, yeah, we're conquering the world. We're going to go to the bottom of the ocean because we've already covered all the land. Or we're going to go to the middle of the earth because we've already covered all the ocean. Or we're just going to take our hot air balloon and we're going to go on a lap around the world. It wasn't just a hot air balloon. They went by train and other forms of transportation. Well, then that's just more to my point. They went by, like, all sorts of technological, industrialized, modernized, conquered Earth versions of travel, and they just showed their power and flexed their muscle on all of that colonialized Earth. And that was kind of the attitude of the adventure log and let's go get them kind of sci-fi, but the other sci-fi, the Mary Shelley sci-fi and the H.G. Wells sci-fi, they were like, hey, maybe how we got here actually comes with some problems and we should double-think ourselves. Yes, indeed. That does seem to be something of a colonialist divide there. Indeed. Wow. Wow, Artemis. Tell us, tell us, what were the other sci-fis at the time? Like, oh, H.P. Lovecraft? How did he fit into this? Well, I don't know if H.P. Lovecraft was actually writing science fiction. Oh, yeah, he was coming up with these big grand stories of people chanting up monsters. Maybe that's fantasy. But, yeah, he was certainly doing that. And then you've got your Wizard of Oz. That wasn't quite science fiction either. It was kind of it was, though. It was like, you know, because it was looking at, like, society from an economics standpoint, from the ramblings of a conspiratorial man-man. It's a little bit of a harsh take. Well, you know, I'm speaking hyperbolically. Uh-huh. But, like, aren't these just part of the sci-fi lineage? Not really, no. Because, again, the science fiction that you're referring to is a dialectic with science itself. So it doesn't just simply respond to the previous science fictions and stories. It is specifically responding to humanity. Still, I think that there's a lot of room here to call those all science fiction. I really don't think so. Okay, I need us to stop altogether and get a grip on what science fiction is and isn't. What is not science fiction? Okay, fine, fine, fine. Okay, throughout the 1800s, 
the not-science fiction were books like War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy and Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. And then we have examples like Moby Dick. Oh, yeah. And Huckleberry Finn. Okay, yeah, yeah. These are all not science fiction. Exactly. These are all books based on the experiences of the people writing them and then expanding on that. What about Alice in Wonderland? You know, Lewis Carroll was dreaming all that up. So do dreamy stories count as non-science fiction if you know you're writing about a dream? No, no, no. That's getting far more back to fantasy. So anything that goes into the imagination and the surreal isn't science fiction, but it is imaginary. It's in that fantasy zone, so I guess it would be the cousin to science fiction. And if it's speculative fiction, then it would maybe be in the genre of science fiction again? Hence why it shares the shelf at all the bookstores? I'm not very comfortable with what you're implying, Bartleby. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So go on. Tell us what happened to science fiction next after it wasn't all of these people, such as H.P. Lovecraft and Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, actually, no, stop right there. Arthur Conan Doyle would have been science fiction. Really? Yes, yes, yes. Because when he wrote his stories about Sherlock Holmes, those stories involved the idea of forensic sciences, which was really rather new. So the concept that there was a person who was intelligent enough to connect all the different forensic sciences together into a modern CSI novel was quite novel at the time. And so very much science fiction, because certainly the police in that time were not doing that. Ooh, that's pretty cool. Yes, yes, yes. So that was science fiction, but... You see, during this same time, science fiction, because it was going into these fantastical kind of niches of thinking, was somewhat looked down upon. Because though it was a medium writing in direct response to the Age of Enlightenment, the Age of Enlightenment brought with it a sense that people should not be reading such fantastic stories and that to be empirical thinkers They should be reading stories not based in the fantastic. So science fiction was viewed in the literary circles in a derogatory way, and this would set itself forth into the next era of science fiction, with contributors like Hugo Gernsback and his amazing stories, a magazine collecting all of science fiction, into an era that was much more of the hero in space, your Buck Rogers and your Flash Gordon. These characters were very much filling the pages of pulp fiction, books that were read quickly, thrown away, and given to children. Whoa. And because it's heroes in space, it's bringing back some of that pro-colonialist attitude that we see in Jules Verne and Jonathan Swift with his Gulliver's Travels. It's more that. It somewhat is, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I'm ready, Artemis. Let's keep going up higher each tier of the inverted pyramid rope bridge. Let's go. Take us up. Oh, dear. This is very tiring climbing this structure. Well, you rolled 18. You asked for it. You passed the skill check. You can do it, Artemis. All right. I'm ready. What happens next? Well, Hugo Gernsback was a mammoth contributor to the point that to this day, One of the highest prestige awards for science fiction is called the Hugo Award, 
Okay, yeah, so he was a big deal. Indeed. Though, there was another publication coming out very similar at the time, Astounding Stories. And some say the advent of this publication was the golden age of science fiction. Why is that? Because John W. Campbell, he was the editor of this magazine, and he was the one who discovered some of science fiction's biggest names, like Isaac Asimov and Robert A. Heinlein. Ooh, I've heard of both of them. Indeed, and this was the beginning of looking at science fiction from a new angle. It was no longer simply looking at these adventure stories. No, they were deeper thinking stories. Oh, so kind of more like the H.G. Wells and Mary Shelley angle. Yes, in a way they were, but they still had some of the attitudes that you would probably refer to as the colonialists in space because there was very much a tone to this era of science fiction where these authors like Asimov, Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, they very much were contributing a sense of science fiction that was based in the hard sciences, the STEM sciences, you might say, for they often had to do with robotics and physics and astrophysics and all of these categories of very much hard sciences. And they were very much fields controlled and dominated by men. And John W. Campbell made it no better, for he chose to be somewhat of a gatekeeper for the world of science fiction, holding such a large space as the editor-in-chief of Astounding Stories. Well, let me say it frankly. He very much kept authors that will not white men from having their publication read. Ooh, that is a bit gatekeepy. And you know what? Super duper in line with the pro-colonialist attitude that has kind of been sipping its way, weaving back and forth through our inverted pyramid rope bridge. Artemis, are you noticing this trend? It's not as dire as you think. Oh, it's not? No, because you see, this became a piece in the dialectic. It became the next avenue for future authors in the new wave of science fiction. Ooh, is that a surfing metaphor? No, no. You see, there was a response to all of this stodgy gate-kept version of science fiction. Authors like Ursula K. Le Guin, Frank Herbert, Philip K. Dick, and Octavia Butler. They started bringing a new voice to science fiction, a soft science first voice, where we looked at society through the lens of sociology and psychology. Ooh. This inspired a new age in science fiction where the authors were actually being more critical of the society that we were living in, seeing the ways in which systemic racism, for instance, would be contributing to keeping society to rising to its full potential. Man, I really like the new age of science fiction. Is this when we get to Star Trek? Yes. That was part of the same motif. Star Trek in itself was somewhat of a tug-of-war in science fiction. We can see Star Trek going back and forth from its very beginnings as it kept a militaristic ranking system of captains and commanders and whatnot, while at the same time they strived with the prime directive to be more open-minded, 
like anthropologists, and each time the Star Trek lineage is handed back and forth, we see this tug-of-war in real time, going from the, oh, look, humanity is just a bunch of conquerors, to actually, they're very open-minded, and we see that coming back and forth between TNG and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and then on into the new Star Trek. Just gonna skip over Enterprise? Mostly, yes. And all of this is in itself a real-time enactment of this back-and-forth dialectic that we are living in between the Golden Age and the New Age. And yet, as we struggled to go back and forth in that terrain, the real new frontier was happening with authors like William Gibson and his book Neuromancer and the advent of cyberpunk. Yeah, punk rock! No, 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 it's not quite that. Cyberpunk is defined by several factors. It's a marriage of technology and humanity. It's also defined by a rebel spirit, hence the punk part. Yeah! Woo! And also there is an element of a corporate overlord that is controlling the structure. Whoa, when did this happen? This would have been the early 80s. And this era of science fiction would include authors like Michael Crichton with Jurassic Park and Congo and Andromeda Strain. They were hearkening back to the hard science fictions and gave way to, especially in Jurassic Park, a new era in cinematic science fiction, in which science fiction rose to a prominent cultural position just as films were becoming capable of depicting their books. And authors like Philip K. Dick Many of his short stories were translated into films going forward, such as Total Recall and Blade Runner. And suddenly, science fiction was not so far away, because people could see the science fiction realities on the screen, and were starting to feel those science fiction realities in their lives. Oh, were they now? Yes, for the cyberpunk genre and the modern era of science fiction was specifically making projections into the not-far future. For technology was advancing so fast that even the fiction writers couldn't keep up. Oh, man. Indeed. And in a sense, Frankenstein is more relevant now than ever. Oh, man. Artemis, that's pretty cool, the way that you brought it back around to Frankenstein. You really want to read that book. I've read it multiple times. I want you to read the book so we can talk about it. Man, I don't know, though, because then our listeners are going to hear us spoil Frankenstein for them. And that sounds like a really bad idea. So we're going to have to figure out something besides making a podcast out of it. But that's the podcast I want to make. Maybe we're going to make it a special bonus podcast for people who contribute to us on Patreon or like Substack or... Some sort of channel where they can only get it through a special avenue. But Bartleby, I don't want to do this podcast. I want to do that podcast. And I was hoping that we could replace this podcast with doing a Frankenstein podcast. Oh, that's probably a no-can-do. We're going to have to do two podcasts at the same time, one for Frankenstein, while we keep doing this one. This is a nightmare. Yes, it is. And, you know, that's a really good point. Okay. So, speaking of nightmares, I think that we've gotten so far into this new era of science fiction that we can start going back and including H.P. Lovecraft and start including Alice in Wonderland 
and maybe not Wizard of Oz because it is some pretty kooky economic theories, very poorly told, or maybe we should definitely include it because all of these things that are in this fictional realm are like drawing from the soup of the giant collective psyche and they are all presenting a speculative fiction what if that contributes to humanity's reflection on itself. And we can't exclude those stories because they are part of a lineage and all of the mythology that came before Frankenstein, Artemis, I'm sorry to say, I think it is science fiction in the sense that is part of the larger narrative of humanity trying to have its own identity and say, who are we? And all that science fiction is, is that humanity is still trying to answer that question in the light of technology. Honestly, I can't disagree with that. But I will say that is what makes science fiction so important. Because as I mentioned, literature rejected science fiction. The empirical age of enlightenment thinking declared itself simply removed from having to pay attention to that nonsense. They wanted to stick to the real, but what science fiction was actually doing was creating something of a mission statement for humanity to reflect upon, and it does so with no institutionalized center. It is a free-formed exploration trying to capture and discover reality Unless you happen to be John W. Campbell. Oh. Oh, you're going to remind us of that, aren't you? Oh, yeah, I am. Yes, if you happen to be John W. Campbell, you would be very much trying to steer humanity in a very specific way because he was very much choosing what voices were speaking in the realm of science fiction and therefore he was very much gatekeeping this non-institutionalized vision for humanity's potential. Indeed he was, and he was doing it in that same manner that was echoed already from colonialism. And gotta be honest, Artemis, that if you look back, there is a theme of people trying to take a belief system and a view of the world and then steer it by trying to put a voice on it in the way that it gets turned into stories. And we totally see that happening in all of the religions, and the promise of science is supposed to be breaking away from those biases that aren't really part of who we are, and instead being able to, like, all that stuff we talked about of self-deconstruct and see yourself, because if you can't know who you really are, you won't be able to observe reality for how it really is, and that is what science was intending to do with all that empirical thinking. Indeed it was. But Descartes and Bacon, they were still from the old-fashioned world, and so they were like, yeah, we're going to take this empirical thinking, and we're going to take control of Mother Nature. She's not going to be so chaotic anymore. Ho-ho, we're going to master her. Take that, Mother Nature. You lady symbology metaphor, we're going to stop making you so erratic. And that's like, uh, got some heavy undertones, Artemis. And those same undertones are the attitude that would go forth into the world and say, hey, people other than us and don't speak the same language as us and don't use all the same symbologies we use. We've decided you're inferior and that's just been decided. Too bad for you. And so these guys have been 
trying to muscle the world into the way they want with their science. And that's a lot more like engineering. Indeed it is. And so that is the people trying to use science fiction as a giant story of ourselves to engineer the reality they want to see. And in a way, you could probably then include H.P. Lovecraft because he was a bigot and he was writing a monster world of bigoted views. And like any monster story, as we already covered on our previous episode, What Monsters Are Made Of, those monsters represent psychological aspects of ourselves. And in the case of H.P. Lovecraft, they were a bunch of racism, but it was the same pool of self-importance that had been staining humanity's attempt to march forward in the face of empirical thinking, the age of enlightenment, as smug and snooty as that was, if they'd actually done it, maybe they could have done some enlightening. But here we are, still struggling to get through that. Indeed, that does bring us to the question of what era of science fiction are we in now and going to next? That is a very good question. Is the answer Metacosmos? Well, that's not what I was going to say. I'm going to imply the answer is Metacosmos. Yeah! That's exactly what it is. Artemis. Good job. Oh, what did I do? You rolled an 18. And that was a great episode of Metacosmos. Good job! Oh, so you're telling me we're done? Yeah, that was great. Good job, Artemis. Okay, well, thank you all so much for coming. I'm Bartleby Nehi. And I'm Artemis Nehi. And we are the Kinetic Paranormal Society. And you are the most awesome, most lovely, most specialist, most smartest, best sense of humor, probably the best looking listeners of any podcast out there. You guys are amazing. And every time you share Metacosmos with your friends, you help them become a little more amazing. Like you! Another way you can show support for Metacosmos is by going to patreon.com slash bluefoot. That's probably where you're going to get the Frankenstein podcast from. But there's other ways you can support us. Go onto social media and like just say hi. Comment on our posts because when you do... It makes us look really popular, and I want people to think that. Oh, so you admit it. No, I don't admit it. I'm just, like, telling people that I want them to think that we're popular, because we totally are. That's why I want them to think that, because it's true. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah. And also, you should check out Isaac Bluefoot's other podcast, Superman, Son of Al, the unauthorized biography of Clark Kent, and, yeah, super cool. A much better use of your time than listening to this nonsense. (laughs) Don't listen to his nonsense. Anyways, you guys are great. I hope you have a wonderful time. And until next week, bye-bye. I love you. So Bartleby, next week, if I roll a 20, can I get out of the podcast altogether? Oh, you wish.